Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Sarah Vishnavak, professor of law at the Texas A&M University. My guest today is Kathy Smith, associate professor of law at the University of Montana Blewett School of Law. We'll be discussing her new article, Political Fair Use. Kathy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's really great to hear your voice and um, chat with you about this article. Great. Um, so, okay, this article is about an interesting distortion, right? The doctrine of fair use in copyright is, uh, of course, a balance between the rights of creators and copyright holders on the one hand, and the ability of the public to use copyrighted works, uh, even without authorization, in certain ways that we consider uh, legitimate. And the distortion that you've identified is that a particular category of unauthorized uses and unauthorized users, those in the political arena, uh, are getting legal treatment that departs from the main body of fair use law. So let me ask you first, please, uh, to set the stage a bit, what kinds of media are we talking about and what kinds of political uses are we seeing? So um, so for, for this article, uh, for the political uses, I, I really wanted to keep it narrow and focus primarily on uses by politicians, political campaigns, or unauthorized uses to talk about a politician or um, a, uh, a, a someone running for, for, for public office. And so the political uses are narrowly, narrowly focusing on that type of use. And what is being used are uh, original creative works in music, in photography, um, in videos, and also in what I call commercial expression. Okay, so uh, in in the case of each of these, you know, the, the sort of canonical example we might think of is uh, a song that an artist uh, recorded, became very popular, and a political campaign decides to use that song at one of its rallies or an ad uh, or something like this. And maybe the artist doesn't subscribe politically to that campaign's uh, views, and so steps in and and says, hey, stop using my music. You don't stand for what I believe in. Is that about right? Yeah, yes, that music, imagery. Um, there is there's a difference, though, with music uses at political campaign rallies and, and music uses in recorded political ads. Sure. Um, for, for rallies, oftentimes uh, the venue um, or, or the campaign perhaps had obtained a, a, a license to use. And in those cases, those are the types of cases that I, that I did not focus on in this article. And I really wanted to focus primarily on cases where a political campaign does not have permission or authorization to use. So a case that would more likely be considered copyright infringement. Okay. So as a practical matter, the situation where a license is simply less uh, likely to be uh, taken uh, presents the, the sort of quintessential case that you're talking about. Is that right? A absolutely. In the, in the music forum. And, and a lot of the litigated cases primarily involve the unauthorized use of music in recorded and advertised political campaign advertisement. Okay. And, uh, and photography, I can imagine sort of similar things, I suppose. The, the photograph is taken without permission, maybe you know, cropped, edited, whatever, but then used uh, without permission. Um, what would uh, commercial expression uh, look like in this context? Um, so, so the commercial expression, so that, that was a couple of one litigated case and one just dispute that I describe in the article. 
Um, it would look something like um, during Sharon Engel's campaign against against Harry Reid, for instance, she used the commercial expression, the monopoly uh, imagery from the, the Hasbro game Monopoly and altered it a little bit to make fun of Harry Reid. Um, and so that that's the type of commercial expression that 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 my article describes, including uh, the Affle- the not the Affleck commercial. The um, uh, let's see, Mastercard, the famous Mastercard commercials that aired a few years ago um, about priceless, the price of different things, and then how mm-hmm. how um, you know be, the ability to use Mastercard, you know, it's priceless, and so that that's the type of commercial expression, original commercial expression that I talk about in, in the article. I see. Um, now I, I was curious in particular about commercial expression and asked about it because it seems to me that. Even things that would fall in other categories, like you know, sound recording or or photograph, um, it's not as if they're created purely for the artistic, you know, sort of fun of it. Uh, they are transacted commercially as well. So, is it fair to say that there's a spectrum of commercial use where you know the Hasbro game or or something like that um, is intended primarily for commercial purposes, whereas the art was created for the sake of art, but is now being bought and sold and, and licensed and rented and so on. So what is there a sort of way we can differentiate commercial expression, qua commercial expression versus other forms of artistic expression that are also uh, the subject of commercial transactions? Um, yes, yes. Um, and, and I think there's a sort of third category here in the article, and that is works that were created for political purposes. And so there, there are works that are created for political purposes, f- mm-hmm. photography taken for political campaigns, songs recorded that send a political message. Those are also expressive, original creative works, but have this underlying political theme. Then there are works that were not created for a political purpose, like um, an engagement photograph capturing, you know, a happy couple's a fabulous day, right? These are works that weren't created for commercial, excuse me, political expression. Also mm-hmm. some of the songs um, uh, like uh, Running on Empty, like, um, let's see, uh, da, 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 da. All She Wants to Do Is Dance. These songs are all involved in litigation. Um, those are created not for political expression. And then you have the original commercial expression, right? So there, there are kind of three categories of works that I describe that all have been used without authorization um, mm-hmm. in this article. Okay. Uh, so with respect to these uh, types of works and their, their uses, uh, a key argument of yours in this paper is that this emerging you know, special category, uh, so to speak, of political fair use cases departs in important ways from the established principles of fair use and copyright law. Um, so as a baseline, what are the things, what are the factors or considerations that fair use uh, doctrine usually tells us to care about? Well, fair use doctrine usually requires a court to examine and, and balance four factors. The first one, which a lot of scholars have said has become one of the more important factors that fair use cases look at, which is the purpose and the character of the defendant's use. And so for that factor, we look at how the defendant is using it, why the defendant is using it, um, and whether the defendant, for instance, has transformed the original work to make it something new. Mm -hmm. 
Fair use also looks at the nature of the copyrighted work, and courts have talked about that factor as looking at whether the original work was highly expressive, right, or was it more of a factual work? If it's a factual work, according to courts' um, cases, traditional cases, fair use cases in the past, if it's a factual work, it's less likely, it's more likely to be fair use by the defendant, and if it's highly creative, it is, it's the opposite. And the amount used, um, the more under traditional fair use, the more a defendant uses, the less likely it is fair use and vice versa. And finally, the fourth factor that also has been pretty significant in fair use cases, which is the effect of the defendant's use on the potential market for or value of the copyrighted work. If, if the secondary use is kind of a substitute for the first, if consumers are now not going to purchase the cop original copyrighted work, instead they can get what they need from the secondary use, it's generally also considered less less to be fair use. Okay, okay. So um, the the purpose and character of the use um, is where, as you point out, the the sort of action is on transformative use doctrine. Um, the amount used is is an interesting thing, right? Because it uh, it varies quite a bit across creative medium. Uh, if you have a song that's only three, three and a half minutes long, uh, even a few seconds, uh, the right few seconds of a really catchy song could be the heart of it. Uh, whereas you could have pages and pages of uh, a book or even a chapter of a book that doesn't quite capture the essence of it. And, you know, quantity in absolute terms doesn't matter very much. It's it's pretty context specific. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And so, so courts do look at under that, that factor, courts do look at exactly that. Um, they, they look at two things, right? They do still consider quantity. Um, how did you copy the entire work? If it's a, if it's a photograph, did you copy the entire work? Of course, they take into context the purpose of the defendant's use when they look at whether or not that factor should lean towards fair use or against fair use. But also the quality of what was taken. If the what was taken was the heart of the work, um, courts are also, under that factor, less likely to find fair use. Okay, okay. And then in terms of market harm, um, it seems like a similar thing, a similar uh, dynamic would be at play. You look at the amount of substitutionary market harm, uh, but also the, the sort of nature of the harm qualitatively. Um, if uh, if people are buying, you know, the the secondary work in place of the primary copyrighted work, five uh, percent of the time, that's not as bad as if they were buying it ninety five percent of the time. But if the copyright owner uh, itself were interested in uh, entering a new market or something like this, then the nature of the substitution, the nature of the unauthorized uh, use and its competitive substitutionary effect, would also come into play. Is that right? Right, right. And, and so it can be a substitute for what's the, the exact work or perhaps usurping sort of a, a, a derivative market that the original copyright owner wanted to get into with their copyrighted works. Um, it is a purely market analysis. And a lot of courts have um, attempted to emphasize that. Um, and, it, and it comes up quite a bit in, in these political fair use cases as well, because um courts, once they find that the original work is was originally created and had a political message, mm -hmm. what I'm seeing in these political fair use cases under this four factor, fourth factor is that 
courts then almost assume, presume that there was no other market for the copyright owner's work, that it was for political for political purpose, um, that that they would not have been able to expand right this copy political copyrighted work into a different market. Um, and so it, I thought that was interesting, right? That go ties back into right, once a court finds that the original work had a political message or was created for a political campaign or had some sort of political theme, um, it, it sort of tilts all the other factors of fair use in favor of political fair use. I see. I see. And so uh, it sounds like, you know, this, this tracks, of course, what you say in the paper about uh, all these current controversies that involve political actors and political uses um, have led courts to focus disproportionately on one of those factors. And it's not the one that we might expect, which is purpose and character of the use. Instead, it's the nature of the copyrighted work. Yes. And it, and it, and it seems that way um, in these political fair use cases. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we we have to examine the the nature of the copyrighted work, the, the original work, whether it's political or not, to determine the first factor, right? Whether it was transformed or not. Um, so these two factors do tend to be analyzed a little bit together. Um, but at the same time, what I'm finding in litigated cases is that if the original work had some sort of political message, deemed to have a, a political message by a court, or was clearly created for a political purpose, mm-hmm. it's unauthorized use by it's unauthorized political use by a defendant. Um, generally, these courts are finding fair use, um, even if the amount taken was the entire photograph, um, even if right the the secondary use doesn't seem as transformative, where we have a political use original political use being used by a secondary party for another political use, courts are generally finding political fair use dependent upon the theme, the political theme or message of the original copyrighted work. So what's the what's the rationale for that? I mean, it sounds like the court is saying, okay, you entered the political arena with your expression now so other political users can do whatever they want with it so long as they're not taking it out of the political arena. And and that seems to be what is driving, seems to be one of the drivers of the court's decisions. Now, it's not explicit in all decisions. In, in some of the decisions, and I think I, I, I divide these discussions up, in some of the decisions, courts clearly are finding the original work to be political. Therefore, they're finding that factor two, the work was informational, even ta- even in cases where it's a, it's a photograph, which most courts find to be creative. Um, and, and, and then in the final decision, emphasizing the political nature of the original work. But it's not always that explicit. And in fact, most cases don't seem to be that explicit. Um, it seems to just be a court going through the fair use factors, seemingly applying them as courts have in the past, um, and yet ultimately finding political fair use based on not entirely based on, but if the original work was, in fact, a political piece. I mean, that, that sounds like it would lead and, and seems to have uh, led, uh, actually have led to some pretty absurd outcomes. And I'm thinking sort of from my own personal experience, uh, I was maybe nine or 10 
when I first discovered um, the song Born in the USA by, by Bruce Springsteen. And right. it wasn't by listening to a Springsteen record. I was actually watching a, uh, a news program or a documentary or something. And it was a speech that, uh, that President Reagan gave in which he quite approvingly, you know, quoted that song. And so I didn't have any independent context for what the song meant. And I thought, oh, wow, Bruce Springsteen, really patriotic guy. He must have been a really big Reagan supporter. And then, right. you know, I, I entered high school and sort of started learning things and discovered, oh, wow, that's one of the great ironic self-satires of all time. Um, so it's yeah. like, if that were applied, if that case, you know, Reagan uses the song or plays it uh, in an ad or something, and then Springsteen sues, then under this analysis that you're describing of political fair use, the court would say, well, the song Born in the USA has a clear and stark political message. Regardless of the content of that message, the fact that the, you know, the Reagan White House uh, basically turned the meaning on its head and took it literally rather than the way in which it was intended is perfectly okay and doesn't stop the use from being fair use. Is that fair to say? Um, maybe, maybe. Um, and, and the reason I say maybe is because there's actually a, a kind of a similar case. Perhaps the political message in um, the Henley v. DeVore case, those two songs, the political message in the two songs, perhaps they weren't, weren't as clear as maybe Born in the USA. Um, but in that case, um, even though the plaintiff did attempt to argue that the underlying songs, I think there was, it was Born to Dance and Voice of Summer, um, the underlying songs, the, 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 the defendant attempted to argue that there was a political message in those cases, the court didn't, didn't necessarily agree. Um, and so, so it, which was kind of an interesting decision, right? It was a decision that, one of the decisions that really made me want to look at um, political fair use a little more closely because um, it was a decision that I thought would come out to be transformative fair use or parody um, parody under fair use. Um, and yet it, it did not. That court in that case found that the uses of those two songs was not fair use. And that case, in combination with the Peterman v. RNC case that we recently had here in the District Court of Montana, really were the two driving forces behind me wanting to look more closely at, at these yeah. decisions. Okay. So in all then, it sounds like the result of this is certain political uses end up at least presumptively appearing to satisfy the fair use standard um, once you've sort of you know, uh, applied the the nature of the of the copyrighted work factor uh, of the fair use analysis. Um, I still find that a little puzzling. Uh, apart from the ways in which we've talked about, uh, just analytically, it seems like it would be the purpose and character of the use that would most easily make room for accommodating political expressions, because of course you're focusing on the political character and the political purpose of the use. Why is it that the original copyrighted work and its nature would be the thing that's so accepting and so accommodating of certain kinds of uses, do you think? And, and that's, a, that's a great question, right? Um, why, so in, in splitting that up, 
why is the secondary use, the political use, not just this presumptive fair use um, by the defendant, right? The political use by the defendant. Why, why isn't that a presumptive fair use? And, and I think there are certain, um, you know, there's certain reasons behind that. I, I don't want to attribute it only to this, but I do think courts in these cases, especially where the original work is not, was not created for political purposes, I think the courts are definitely considering privacy rights, uh, privacy interests, um, dignity interests of creators or people appearing within the images that are being used without authorization. And that the Hill v. Public Advocate of the U.S. case, I think, is a clear, clearly displays that that consideration by the court. Um, in that case, uh, a same-sex couple, you know, ca- took engagement photos capturing the happiest day of their lives, um, and that image was then taken and used by a nonprofit. Um, um, anti-same-sex nonprofit to sort of send out in pamphlets to citizens of Colorado, um, you know, denigrating sort of same-sex marriage and and criticizing politicians who support same-sex marriage. And so that use, um, right, that of a, a photograph that was transformed to send a a public message, whether or not we agree with it or not, right? A public message that seems transformative, and that seems like it has been transformed from its original purpose. Um, its original content was also transformed into something else. And the court, in that case, in a motion to dismiss, at least, didn't deny the motion to dismiss the copyright infringement claim and said that that you know it's he did not did not it did not find that that would automatically be considered fair use. And so I, I, it seems like at least where the original work was not created for a political purpose, mm-hmm. courts perhaps are considering other interests in their decision, uh, in their fair use analysis and decision. Okay. Okay. So the fact that it's a political use by the uh, the accused infringer is relevant, but not conclusive. And the inquiry into the nature and purpose of the original copyrighted work can act as a safety valve. Um, in in sort of differentiating more finely between certain cases where fair use is appropriate and can vindicate uh, certain interests. But in other cases, we might want to vindicate privacy and dignity and things like this and say, no, this is not fair use. And so there's a sort of stronger protection um, from copyright against these things. Um, right. And, and it seems that that's, and it seems that that, uh, that, that those considerations are sort of sneaking into courts' decisions. And while not expressly stated, because copyright law is not uh, technically meant to protect privacy or dignity interests um, of copyright owners or individuals featured in, in imagery, um, but but it seems that certain cases perhaps have that consideration in the decision. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, I mean, so far that doesn't sound particularly problematic. It's there are four factors and the courts are making use of more of the four factors. So, you know, so far not bad. But of course, um, as you explain, it's gone much further. The the emphasis on the nature and purpose of the original copyrighted work is taking not only its you know equal place, but a disproportionately sort of outsized place in the uh, in the analysis. 
Yes, and it, it seems to it seems to influence. It seems to influence sort of the balancing of the rest of the fair use factors. And one of the examples is um, the amount used, right? The amount used, which is which is factor three under fair use. Yeah. Um, in in these political fair use cases, um, courts have looked at whether or not under factor three, and I thought this was kind of interesting in these cases, but under factor three. Um, whether or not the defendant had to use this much of the original work in order to get its message across. And in cases where the court has already determined that the original use was political, or even in cases where the court hasn't expressly said that, but in, in cases just generally involving plaintiff's work having a political message, even where the secondary work takes the entire imagery, and even under this factor where a court's expressly saying, um, you defendant, you actually did not need to take this exact image of plaintiffs to get this message across. You could have used plenty other imagery. You could have taken your own photograph, um, right, to get the same exact message across. Those cases are still going for, right, the courts in those cases are still ultimately finding political fair use. And it seems that that determination influences factor three, that determination influences factor one, and that that, that makes sense. Um, that those now analyzing factor one and factor two together makes sense. Um, and then it seems to also influence factor four, which is the uh, market consideration. And courts, again, are saying if this is a political work, they, they almost presume that there is no not going to be any market harm that a photographer who takes a photo of a politician uh, to send a political message, right, first of all, will never license that work to the opposing party to use and also will not be able to make any more market, market money or money from that licensing that work for any other purposes. So that's an interesting economic conclusion to reach, right? Because, okay, let's assume for the moment that uh, whatever, Credence Clearwater Revival would never have licensed Fortunate Son to the Trump campaign, or Bruce Springsteen would never have licensed um, Born in the USA to the Reagan uh, re-election campaign or anything like this. But surely an artist with a clear political message, so far as we can discern, um, uh, might be willing to license it to a member of their own party, you know, the party with which they are, are sympathetic. And if they give this market advantage to, you know, if, if a left-leaning artist licenses to the Democratic Party and the right-leaning artist licenses to the Republican Party, the ability to exclude members of the opposing party from that uh, market for that particular work uh, seems quite economically salient, but the court seems to be just completely glossing over that. Is that, is that right? That, that is, yes, that, that is right. I mean, there have been a couple of courts that, that, in their uh, decision seemed sort of sympathetic to this type of argument, you know, that that un the unauthorized political use of creator's work could damage uh, the artist's rep reputation or could cause some form of commercial harm, like losing out on future commissions, right, because their works were picked up and used by the opposition. Um, so they, there seems to be, they seem to express some sympathy towards this argument where artists and plaintiffs have brought up this argument under factor four, but that has not, that has not uh, pushed a court to find not fair use in these cases. Um, they generally reject the argument um, because fair use 
uh, isn't supposed to take into account commercial depreciations that are due solely to critical commentary of underlying work. And, you know, it doesn't, it's not supposed to protect general reputation of the artists. No artists can guarantee exclusivity. Right. Okay. So, so far the distortionary effects seem to be cutting fairly, you know, squarely against the ability of copyright owners to control how their work is used. This is uh, a lot of expansionary, uh, you know, trends in fair use in favor of the secondary political user, the secondary political use. But you do point out in the article that in other situations that the result might cut in the opposite direction. So certain other copyright owners might get greater power to curtail infringing behavior, even if the infringement causes no market harm. So this is the sort of flip side of that. Could you say a bit about what that would look like in practice? Um, yes. Um, and so so I, I think even though it's not a guarantee that um, that a copyright owner who creates a, uh, a, even though it's not a guarantee that there will um, not be fair use if a copyright owner doesn't create a political piece and it gets used for political purposes, it seems more likely that a court, because of the consideration for dignity rights, because of the consideration for privacy rights, um, may be less likely to find fair use with this type of unauthorized use. It's not a guarantee, though. And, and I did point out in one case in uh, the article, which is the, the commercial expression case, um, the unauthorized use of the MasterCard, Ralph Nader's unauthorized use of the MasterCard commercial, right? The mm-hmm. MasterCard commercial was not a political expression. It was purely commercial expression. And that court in that case did find that Nader's use for political campaign purposes was fair use. But in most of the other cases that I found, courts seem sympathetic to creators that did not create a political piece and then is used without authorization. And, and, that, and that, that, in a way, kind of makes sense, um, right? If you, we step back and think about that, especially in our political world right now, um, people have very strong feelings and opinions about politicians um, and the dignity, that autonomy, that right to control uses by politicians that you may completely disagree with, both morally as well as politically, right, can be harmful right, to artists. Um, while I'm not arguing that that courts are thinking that artists will no longer create works because their works are being used with all this authorization by politicians. Um, but I do think courts are taking in consideration that that kind of harm to a, an author's dignity by the work being used in this way. Okay. So instead of a one-way ratchet where the rest of the system's working okay, it sounds like what we've got is actually false positives and false negatives. So errors in both directions where political uses that maybe you know should be constrained are not being constrained because of their political valence. And at the same time, in the absence of a political purpose to the original work, we're just assuming that there's market harm, we're not actually engaging in the kind of um, uh, fact-finding maybe that, uh, that, would, uh, that we would ordinarily want to, to see. And as a result, some artists are getting more control than fair use traditionally would give them, and others are getting less control than fair use traditionally would give them. 
yes, in, in these political cases, it, do, it does feel that way. It does feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, now, underlying all of this, of course, you know, the, the particular category that, uh, that you've chosen and, and explained so well here um, is quite important in constitutional terms. We're talking about political fair use and these cases arise uh, because political expression uh, enjoys a really high constitutional pedigree. Um, but the Supreme Court in its copyright cases has cautioned against some of the, the particular you know, solicitude that these cases seem to be showing for po- political expression. So could you say a bit about what those uh, forms of Supreme Court guidance are and, and why these courts might be sort of cutting against that guidance? Right. Um, and so it, it's and not 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 every scholar agrees. Right there. there I think there are a lot of scholars who have come out with fantastic articles on on how um, copyright law right, it is certainly a seems to be uh, potentially unconstitutional because you are you are as a government granted right. Right. To stop others from expressing themselves. But but at the same time, courts have pretty, pretty clearly explained um, that, that copyright law, that copyright act and, and First Amendment were drafted to work together to encourage creation and dissemination of speech and, and expression. And that copyright act actually already embraces as well as encompasses some First Amendment safeguards. Um, and one of them, which is the most relevant for this article, is fair use, right? And so courts have said, um, to litigants, defendants that have tried to raise the argument that by not allowing them to use the plaintiff's expression, this is unconstitutional, right? They have a First Amendment right to use a plaintiff's expression to express their own message. And courts have said, actually, not exactly. You have to, courts have to go through this balancing of these four fair use factors in order to determine whether or not the defendant is permitted to use plaintiff's expression to express their own message. Okay, so in short then, yes, political expression enjoys First Amendment uh, protection, but it's not as if courts are supposed to engage in independent First Amendment review of copyright because the copyright system already has built into it these First Amendment safety valves. Exactly. Exactly. And the courts generally follow that, that Supreme Court guidance. Um, and also, uh, I, uh, courts have also tried to be clear that just because an underlying work, just because an underlying work has an important public message mm-hmm. also does not mean that its automatic use should be considered fair use. Courts still have to go through the four factors of analysis to determine whether or not the unauthorized use is indeed fair use. Okay. All right. So then, okay, if, if the courts are then, you know, the courts who are engaging in these kinds of political fair use uh, analyses, uh, apart from the traditional fair use analysis, uh, to the extent they are going against Supreme Court guidance uh, in these ways, uh, in your view, how do these distortions affect the incentive that copyright law is supposed to offer uh, for people to invest in creative expression? Right. Um, and so I, I don't want to, I don't want to fully say that it, it might um, affect a creator of political expressive work in a way that will then therefore not um, 
uh, that therefore she will no longer create political stress of works. I think um, a lot of people have looked into why people create and it's not always. Um, and sometimes people even argue that is rarely due to right, the exclusive right provided and afforded to an artist under copyright law. Um, at the same time, um, whether or not it would disincentivize, discourage creatives or political expressive work from putting into the work, the sort of creativity and um, time um, that they normally would, knowing that it's likely that the opposing party can potentially use this without authorization. That I think is maybe a consideration as well as whether the original creator is as willing to openly share their works online, right? We, I think it, it, I think everyone would agree that it benefits society, right? Expressive works benefit society more if we can all access it, if we can all review it, read it, right? Appreciate it. Um, and if, a creator of political expressive works feels that she um, may not have the same amount of protection as a, as a creator of works that aren't don't have a political message. Um, perhaps she would be less likely to share and openly share that work with the public. Well, so let me dig into that a little bit because it it seems like we're talking about a few different things. There's it's one thing to say, and and the the literature you pointed to about you know motivations for creation. Um, is is quite compelling in this regard. Um, people create for reasons uh, frequently unconnected to money, for example. They might do it because they want to get famous. They might want do it just for the love of uh, what it is they're creating. Um, but to the extent they invest, frequently there are moral intuitions about being able to um, not control in a legal sense, but control in a creative sense. Um, the the work that they that they invest in right so it might be more precise i guess to say that these uh distortions that we're identifying uh, or these divergences from fair use even if they don't undermine the incentive to create at all people will create for whatever reasons they've always created but it might change the direction of what's being created it might change the quality and and sort of character of what's being created if uh, people uh, who are engaged in the creative process have a, an increasingly reasonable expectation uh, that, look, people are going to be able to use my work for political uh, purposes. And if I entered the, the creative you know, process with a political message in mind, I'm going to be treated differently than if I entered with a commercial objective in mind. I want to make it big and, and be famous and so forth. Um, so it might influence the direction that people take, even if they're going to take some creative direction regardless. Is that fair to say? Yes, it's, it's, it is possible, right? Um, and again, as, as you uh, put extremely well, right? It, it, perhaps it's, I don't think it will stop people from creating generally. I think people mm -hmm. who are creative are going to create. Um, but what they create, how they share their work, how they create, how much effort they put in um, to their creation um, could potentially be influenced if they realize that if they have a political message um, in their work, their work may be more easily used. And, and another um, interesting thing is that they, it may also incentivize them and perhaps courts to 
read into, right, read into um, their work in a different way. Um, in other words, right, I think um, um, Andrew Gilden has a piece on market gibberish um, talking about how courts, right, especially under this fourth factor of fair use, attempt to find um, a market for works by authors that that not likely would not likely have gone into that market, right? In order to, to sort of protect the dignity, privacy interests, courts are using language and litigants are using language about markets that probably would never have existed anyway, um, but that are some the courts are finding this market being usurped. And so understanding the line of cases, you could have right, a political somebody who creates expressive political works arguing um, this commercial commercial aspect of their work when really their work was generally purely like political in message. Right. And I mean, you could imagine this going in, in both directions as well. So let's assume for the moment that people are completely unaffected by all of these legal decisions, because what, you know, artist worth her salt sits around reading, you know, uh, copyright decisions. Um, mm-hmm. They're going to keep doing exactly what they were doing before. But when the time comes to enforce or to defend against uh, uh, litigation, it'll affect our interpretive choices in both directions. So you might say, yeah, this piece absolutely had a political message. And here's what I think it is. Uh, or the creator might say, whoa, 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 hold on. You're reading a bunch of stuff that's not there. This is simply a song about, you know, uh, where I was born. It's got nothing to do with a, a you know, mm-hmm. a message of patriotism or, or whatever. So it might encourage greater or lesser um, interpretive digging, I suppose, uh, to get the outcome you want in a particular case. Um, and the works themselves will continue to be as they as they have been. So we might see a different character of litigation just as we might see a different character of creation, or we might see both, right? Yeah, yeah. No, no, a different character of creation, different character of interpretation of works, um, as well as, you know, some really creative litigating on behalf of of parties that that probably did not have any more market or commercial uses for their copyrighted work just to get the results based on sort of the trend in these political fair use decisions and so how does that uh, i mean you, you talk about incentives to create in the, in the latter part of your article you also discuss a little bit the the effects on litigation certainty so what do you think some of those uh, effects on litigation might might look like um so so the I guess the effects on litigation certainty that that's going to be more of a positive if we're seeing a trend in um, cases, right? It's always nice for litigants, creators, um, attorneys representing them to know the more likely outcome. And I, I'm going to say that this is best for creators, especially, um, right? So you have a uh, a creator who, if they know of this trend in political fair use, perhaps will be more like, will know going into the creative process um, that the work that they create for a political campaign can be more open to use by the opposition. And this also helps a political campaign when they're deciding what works to use in order to express their own uh, politician's message whether how much certainty they can go into using without authorization um, another party's work. 
Um, and so litigation certainty, you know, it can be really helpful. Uh, perhaps it'll decrease the number of cases we have. Um, at the same time, though, right, that litigation certainty, um, no, the creator, original creator, knowing down the line what might happen to their work can also touch on the, 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 the incentives to share, the incentives to creatively create um, as well. And so that's that section. That's why I balanced that section in the same section of the paper, which is litigation certainty sort of balanced against incentives to create. Okay. Um, and, and that makes sense to me. I mean, in, in economic terms, um, you know, litigation, uh, it's, it's a very commonly uh, sort of held view that litigation arises when value and the stakes are high and certainty is low. If we know which way it's going to come out, why waste time litigating? Um, mm-hmm. And so this is a sort of variation on the familiar debate uh, of, about rules that are clear and predictable versus standards that are flexible and, and open-ended. And, and that's what I'd like to to ask you something about in closing. I wonder if you might be interested in speculating uh, a little bit on what I think could be an important additional implication of this project. If the courts are making uh, analytical and normative departures, uh, as you suggest, is it because the traditional, you know, flexible standards-based fair use framework really is unequipped for striking a balance between political expression and copyright? Uh, or is it that the fair use doctrine is perfectly adequate and maybe it's the courts who have overestimated uh, the problem that they're trying to solve in terms of you know political expression requiring this additional layer of uh, of protection oh, that's a really big question <laughs> so um i am generally very much in favor of the flexibility of the fair use factors in copyright law. Um, I think um, they are meant to be read flexibly. Um, I think they are not meant to, not one single factor is not really meant to sort of stampede across the other three factors, although, you know, influence the other three factors. Yes, def- definitely that happens all the time, especially here in political fair use decisions. And so even though I know that that has been a large complaint uh by litigants that fair use factors, you know, there's no clear line, there's no clear slam dunk of fair use, um, that more certainty is certainly more helpful. Um, yes, some certainty is certainly helpful, but but I do think that the doctrine is set up to be analyzed and to be used to best balance um, a, an artist's right to control mm-hmm. their work through copyright law, uh, balance that with sort of secondary uses or the public's right to use the work um, without authorization to express new messages, including uh, sometimes political messages. Um, and so uh, I, I think f- for now, this emphasis on the original nature of the work and whether or not it's a political or not, while it may not be a perfect answer to these political fair use cases, um, I, I, I can see why I can see it as being right and a reasonable attempt by the courts to balance the importance of political expression um, with original copyright owners' uh, right to control and right in their privacy or, or dignity interests in their works. And I can see this as being an imperfect 
way to do it. Um, and um, while it certainly, I think, is a little bit over-inclusive in some cases and perhaps a little under-inclusive in some cases, it, it, it seems to be the best effort that they have been able to put forth so far. Okay. Um, well, with that, uh, I invite our listeners, of course, to read the full paper. Uh, it is forthcoming in the William & Mary Law Review, but you can also download it right now at SSRN, uh, the link for which is included in the liner notes for this show. Kathy, so, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed reading this and, uh, and really enjoyed our discussion. Thank you so much, Saurabh. This is great. Thank <laughs> you.